So let's get to the Word of God. I want to talk to you today about uh, second childhood. Um, Charles, upstairs. Charles, are you up there? I don't see you, but I'm hoping you're up there. You know what? These slides had white backgrounds. I wonder, is there anything we can do about that? Maybe there isn't. It's going to be painful, though. (laughs) In any event, follow with me. Uh, Second childhood. I want to talk to you about second childhood. How many of you have ever wondered what it would be like if today you could meet yourself as a child? Stop and think about that. What do you think you would think of you as a kid? And what would you as a kid think of you as an adult? (laughs) That's where the rub is. You remember this. A number of years ago, Disney put out a movie uh, called The Kid. And uh, Bruce Willis is this 40-year-old top executive, and he meets himself as an 8-year-old. And I used to watch this movie with my own kids. We used to get a big kick out of it. But uh, he, um, he meets himself as, uh, 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 as a child. And, and um, the kid, one time, he enters Willis's house, and he starts shouting, Chester! 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 Here, boy! Come on, Chester! And, 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 and Willis says, Kid! Will you stop that yelling? Who is Chester? My dog. The dog I'm going to get when I grow up. The world's greatest dog. He rides in the back of my pickup truck. He plays frisbee. He goes everywhere with me. Bad news, kids. No dog here. I can't take care of a dog. I travel all the time for work. Wow, I knew it. I grow up to be a jet pilot. Not a jet pilot, kid. I'm an executive. Hey, shouldn't there be a lady here? I mean, you're 40 years old. You should have a wife. No wife. And finally, Rusty says, so let me see. I'm 40. I'm not married. I don't fly jets. And I don't have a dog. I grow up to be a loser. Would the kid you look at the adult you and say, what a loser you are? I mean, what happened to some of the magic that we had as kids? What happened to some of the special stuff that we had as, as, as children that, that kind of made life into, into something beautiful, hope and dream? Uh, and, and some of that stuff got lost. And I think we traded Parcheesi and Snakes and Ladders for their Kardashians and Hell's Kitchen and, and somewhere something got lost. It's, a, it's an old problem. It's an old problem. And uh, I want you to look at it in Matthew 18 and verse 1. At that time... The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, status and position were very important, crucial issues in the first century world. In fact, uh, part of a messianic hope was that, that when the Messiah would come, he would raise Israelites to the top of the heap from the bottom of the heap. And so the disciples were having a little bit of an argument about which one of them was going to be top dog. And in Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus asked them what the fight was about, and all of a sudden, everything got silent. (laughs) And finally, one of them blurted, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. 
unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, listen guys, this business of jockeying for position, this is silliness, it's ridiculous. Listen, unless you become like a little child, as long as you're playing those kinds of games with each other, you can't even grasp the meaning of the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But stop and think, what, what the heck does he mean? I mean, can we just give up responsibility and be little kids? What would that look like? You quit your job, you play video games, you go swimming all summer down at Ramsey. Can a, can a person enter her mother's womb and be born a second time? What does, what does Jesus mean we have to become like little children? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to take a few moments and look through the Gospel of Matthew at different places where Jesus makes this comparison to children. And, and, and I think what we're going to find is, is that, that there's some insights that we can gather here. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus also say this? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Charles, you're a genius. Thank you very much for fixing my slides. These disciples were into serious stuff. I mean, they're into the heavy-duty theological stuff. They're into doctrinal arguments. They're into healing the sick and raising the dead. They're about, they're about changing the world, inciting the messianic revolution, starting a radical new way of life. So get the kids out of the way. If there's anything lower than women in their patriarchal world, it was kids. Keep them quiet, obedient, and out of the way. Especially out of Jesus' way. I mean, Jesus got bigger fish to fry than small fry. But Jesus stops the whole parade. He brings everything to a halt because of the kids. And, and, and I think this is more than just a teachable moment. This is more than just spiritual rhetoric. I believe that Jesus actually valued children when he said, let them come to me. Stop everything else and let me bless the children. It says something significant. And if you track how Jesus talks about children, you've got to ask yourself, is there really such a thing as a second childhood that we need to recover. Can we possibly re go and have a second childhood? Can we possibly recover something of childhood that makes us capable of, of grasping, of sensing, of entering the kingdom of God? I want to share with you four qualities that I think Jesus is talking about here. Four qualities of childhood that we must recover in order to become like little children. Let's start in Matthew chapter 21. Um, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to David, uh, the son of David, they were indignant. 
Of course, this is the great Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And the crowd is going wild. And Jesus is doing marvelous things. And, and the leaders are indignant. He says, do you, they say, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, saw the wonderful things he did, and the children saw it too. The crowd's going wild. And verse 14 says, The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple courts, and he healed them. And both the children and the religious authorities saw exactly the same wonderful things that Jesus did. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law could only see their traditions. They could only see their preconceived notions, their prejudices. And they saw, all that they saw was another traveling preacher, another flimflam man, another imposter. But the children, the children penetrated the surface and they could see the hand of God. They saw the Messiah. It was the children who cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. The children understood what no one else understood. I don't know if you remember Oswald Chambers. He was that great devotional writer at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. He wrote a book called My Utmost for His Highest. Listen to what Chambers says. He says, faith is the inborn capacity to see God behind, uh, to see God behind everything. Faith is the wonder that keeps you an eternal child. Wonder is the very essence of life. Beware always of losing the wonder. And the first thing that stops wonder is religious conviction. Listen to me. We are in danger. The longer we have known Jesus, the longer that we have followed him, we are in danger of hardening of the religious arteries, of, of somehow settling into some kind of a static belief system instead of a dynamic relationship. And, and when that happens, we lose the sense of wonder. Whenever you give a trite testimony, the wonder is gone. Now catch this, because this is the punchline. The evidence of salvation is that the sense of wonder is developing. Now, now what, what, what he's saying is as you grow, as you mature as a believer, if it's real spiritual growth that's happening in your life, your sense of wonder, rather than shrinking, your sense of wonder is growing. It's developing. You sense the, the incredible wonder of the kingdom of God more and more. And your sense of wonder becomes profound. Listen. We need to recover a sense of mystery. Have you ever noticed that kids appreciate the wonder around them? You know, you buy a kid a gift for his birthday or for Christmas, and he tears open the wrapping paper, he tears open the box, he looks at the toy, and then he plays with the box for the rest of the day. I mean, kids have a sense of wonder. We need to 
regain that in our lives. A sense of mystery. <laughs> well, there's another passage that I think is really significant. Maybe you remember when Jesus sent the disciples out and they came back having, having performed signs and wonders and miracles and, and they're, they're talking to Jesus and, 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 and they're stunned by all that they've, uh, that they've done. It says here, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. You know, we think that the profound truths are for the older, the wiser, the learned. I mean, after all, I went to university. I studied and achieved my doctorate in theology. I'm not just Pastor David. I am Dr. David Coreth. Yes. But the fact is, many people ask me when I, when I got my doctorate, uh, they asked me, David, David, what did you, so what did you learn? You, you did this big doctorate thing, you know, five years of schooling, and, and so what did you learn? As though I could tell you in like 10 seconds. But the truth is, I really can tell you in 10 seconds. Here's what I learned. The intellect is an incredibly weak device for accessing the true knowledge of God. The mind, the human reason, the intellect is a very, very weak instrument for knowing God. However, it's a necessary instrument. That's what I learned in five years of being a big doctor. That's what I learned. But, but listen, there are certain things that are hidden from the wise and revealed only to little children. You know, this is the most unfair thing about life. I, you know what I think is the worst? The most unfair thing about life is the way that it ends. I mean, life is tough. <laughs> it takes up a lot of your time, you know. And what do you get at the end of it? You die. I mean, what is that, a bonus or something? I mean, I think the life cycle is all backwards. I think you should, you should die first and get it out of the way. And then you should, you should live in an old age home until you get kicked out when you're too young. You know, it's kind of the life of Benjamin Button. Uh, and, and, and then you get a gold watch and you go to work. And then you work for 40 years until you're young enough now to really enjoy retirement. Yeah, you enjoy life, you get ready for high school, you go to grade school, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities, then you become a little baby, and then you go back into the womb. And you spend your last nine months just floating in nothingness. And then you finish off as an explosion of intimate delight. I mean, isn't that a beautiful picture? Well, turns out God doesn't think like I think. It's probably a good thing. No, no, the way that it works is, is the other way around. And the other way around works because God delights in hiding things from us and then revealing them to us in moments of childlike simplicity. In uh, 1997, Reeve Lindbergh 
the daughter of that famous aviator, Charles Lindbergh, was invited to uh, give an address at the Smithsonian Institute to commemorate the 70th anniversary of her father's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. You remember this story? Um, and, and, and on the day of the speech, the museum officials invited her to come early before the facility opened so that she could have a close-up look at the spirit of St. Louis. How many of you have ever been at the Smithsonian uh, uh, Institution? Uh, I think, what's it called? The Air and Flight Museum or something? Anybody here been there before? Have you ever seen the spirit of St. Louis? It's incredible. It just hangs there from the ceiling of the Smithsonian. And they got there early enough that she and her 10-year-old son uh, had a chance to get into a cherry picker, and they lifted up the cherry picker up to the height of the plane. She could put her hand on the ledge of the window. She touched the handle of the door. And she says that, like, you know, she, she felt tingling up and down her spine. She looked at her 10-year-old son, Ben, and said, oh, Ben, isn't this amazing? And Ben said, yeah, equally impressed. I've never been in a cherry picker before. (laughs) She says, my father would have been delighted with that answer. Because children have a sense of simplicity and, and they, 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 they see things so much more clearly than we do. Kids know that they don't know. And we need to somehow regain that same simplicity of, of knowing the things that we don't know and being open to revelation, that moment where God shows you something. That moment where God opens your mind, opens your heart, opens your spirit. And what happens to us is is the longer that we live in this this religious world, this Christian world, the, the harder our arteries get, the less capable we are of being surprised by joy and delighted by God's revelation. Here's another one. This is uh, Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, he says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And, and as many of you will know, these are present continuous verbs in Greek. So it's not just ask and you'll receive, it's the person who asks and keeps asking. The one who seeks and keeps on seeking. The one who, who knocks and keeps on knocking, that person, that person will have the answer. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will, uh, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Somebody say amen. That's the kind of father we have. Now, how many of you have been in the grocery store with a kid? Hey, eh? Yeah, you, you've been there. Eh? I, we used to go, you know, put the kid in the little uh, cart, and, and our kids would grab things off the shelves as we were going by, you know? Like, like you, know, you know how it is. Kids want things. Can I have that chocolate bar? Can I have that? I want those chips. How many of you, how many of you, now this never happened with our children, 
But how many of you have ever seen a parent with a child having a tantrum at the grocery store aisle checkout? Anybody here been there? Not your kid, but somebody else's kid, right? I mean, when you're a little kid, the palate is very narrow. You only have two ways of expressing yourself. But, but you know, they can wear us down. Kids can wear us down. But here's the point. What else is that kid going to say but that? <laughs> you know what he needs is a bottle. You know something? We need to learn to express our dependence on God. There's, there's a sense of mystery. There's a sense of simplicity. But there's a sense of dependence. Kids know who to ask and they know how to receive. And of course, what happens to us in the muscular Christianity in which we are discipled is, is we become independent. We don't need help. I can put my big boy pants on all by myself. We don't need anybody to come and, 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 and take care of us. Ah. But if you lose that sense of moment by moment existential dependence on God, then you lose track of your relationship with him. Your relationship with God is a direct function of your dependence upon him. Give us this day our annual salary, Lord. No. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. Every bite you take, every breath you take, every moment you wake is a moment of dependence. And if you don't see it that way, then you miss, you miss the divine in your life. Therefore, Jesus says, coming back to Matthew 18, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Here's another aspect of childlikeness. It's called humility. <laughs> we got some crazy ideas about humility, don't we? Someone comments on how you look today, but you're really trying hard to be humble, so you, you kind of shuffle your feet and you say, well, I'm not really that attractive. It's just the, the dim lighting in the room. <laughs> or maybe you, you get real spiritual. You quote scripture like gold in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. <laughs> That'll pretty much remove the problem of receiving too many compliments. You know, <laughs> it'll be over after that. Listen, humility isn't about being self-effacing or beating yourself up. Humility is about forgetting yourself entirely. Wow, that's a whole different aspect, isn't it? It's about forgetting yourself altogether. Being unself-conscious. In John Ortberg's words, 
It's about having a Copernican revolution of the soul. You guys remember Copernicus, don't you? Uh, that great astronomer who, who determined that actually uh, the sun and the universe do not revolve around the earth, but in fact, the earth revolves around the sun. What'd you say? You mean we're not the center of all of creation? We are not the ones about whom everything is and for whom everything exists? No, you are not the one. How many of you have had that Copernican revolution in your life? Hey, all you got to do is get married. That'll do it for you. <laughs> I have to, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm an only child. I was 10 years old before I had the Copernican revolution. <laughs> 10 years old, I was in the classroom. I was being kept in after school. Do you remember when they used to keep you in after school? Anybody here ever been kept in? Yeah, 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 you evil people. <laughs> Sinners, I call you. Anyway, I was being kept in after school. And Miss Watson made me sit there and take everything off the desk and put my hands on the desk and just sit there for, it seemed like, 10, 12 hours. And, and, and Miss White, from the other grade four, walked into the room and said, Hello, dear. And I said, Hi, Miss White. She said, I wasn't talking to you. All of a sudden, I realized I wasn't the only dear in the classroom. That, that Miss Watson was a dear too. I mean, it was, a, it was a revolution to my life to discover that I am not the center of the universe. You know what? <laughs> we all need a Copernican revolution. Realizing that there's a God and you're not Him. Realizing that your life revolves around something larger than yourself. Somebody said to me, oh, don't call it a Copernican revolution. Call it a Copernican revelation. I think that's even better. We need a revelation like that, don't we? True story. A lady named Gwen Bird was teaching Sunday school. She was teaching about creation. And it involved kids portraying animals and trees and the sun and the moon. And, and, and one six-year-old boy, Jonathan, was, was assigned the rather large task of playing God. So he had to stand up on a ladder and shine a flashlight on all the proceedings. And just about the time when the creeping things are supposed to creep and the swimming things are supposed to swim, Gwen felt a tugging on her skirt. It was God, and he wanted out. I, I'm just too crazy to be God today, said Jonathan. Could you get somebody else? How many of you are too crazy to be God today in your world? Too crazy to be God. I think I need somebody else to take over. Listen, all of us need a little bit of humility. You know, kids have nothing to lose. They don't know power trips. They don't know having to keep up with the Joneses. They don't need to be God in their little universe. In fact, they know quite well. That's one thing that a kid knows better than any adult. I'm not in control. They know quite well they aren't God until they learn different. We call that maturity. 
So the question is, David, I, you know what? I get it. Humility, I, I think this is good stuff. I, humility and dependence and, and, and simplicity and mystery. These are, these are great qualities, but, but I can't just make myself have them. How do I retain those qualities? How do I regain those qualities? How can I have a second childhood? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Maybe you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see. You gotta understand this. We don't even perceive the kingdom of God until we're born again. No one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's very wise. He's learned. He's a doctor. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. No, no, you, you can't do that. In fact, there's nothing that you can do about this. It's something that must be done to you. You must be born again. God does it, and you get it. I don't know if you, some of you who remember my time here in Sudbury will, will remember that one of my favorite authors has always been C.S. Lewis. Love C.S. Lewis. Nobody turns a phrase like Lewis does. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis tells the story in the final volume. It's called The Last Battle. And there's a scene of a beautiful land on a clear day. The whole earth is full of glory, resplendent with glory, alive with the radiance that only our best, most glorious days can hint at. It's Narnia. It's the, the promised land, the longed-for land. And several of the heroes of the story are walking about with increasing awe an irrepressible joy, never having even imagined anything so beautiful and so intensely alive and so real and so good. But also present is a bitter little band of scowling dwarfs. And they are not exploring. There is no light of wonder in their eyes. They have no joy they are, in fact, huddled in a tight circle on the ground. Far from knowing themselves to be in a beautiful land on a clear day, they believe they are trapped in a pitch-black, pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Lucy, maybe you remember Lucy, one of the heroes of the story, shouts to the dwarfs, but it isn't dark, you poor, stupid dwarfs. Can't you see? Look up, look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? One of the scowling dwarfs named Diggle, isn't that a great name for a dwarf, Diggle? Oh, fantastic. Blurts out in exasperation. How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? How can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch darkness? 
Instantly, a bolt of grief shoots through Lucy's heart. Then an idea comes to her. She snatches up some wild violets and she shoves them toward Diggle. Listen, dwarf, she says, even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. Can you smell that? And smell he can. But far from smelling fresh violets, Diggle smells stable litter and is so deeply offended he takes a swipe at her. this point, the great lion Aslan appears. You all remember Aslan. He's the, the Christ figure in Narnia. And Aslan, the supreme hero of the story, the one responsible for the existence and the glory of Narnia, and Lucy in her bewildered grief over the blind dwarfs, immediately implores Aslan to do something to help them. And what follows is fascinating. Aslan raised his head, shook his mane, and instantly gave out a great roar. And immediately a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. Clearly you have to be British to appreciate this. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he'd gotten a bit of old turnip, and the third said he'd found raw cabbage leaf. And they raised the golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking. Dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. And they spat it out. What a tragic situation. The dwarfs sit in the open on a cloudless, splendid day. Before them is a luscious feast called forth by the king himself. They have golden goblets in their hands. But as Lucy said, their eyes are all wrong. And so is everything else. Everything is dreadfully wrong. They, they actually drink the red wine of the promised land and they taste only dirty water from a donkey's trough. Now, I want you to hear carefully, because this is so important to grasp. These dwarfs are no further away from the wealth, the abundance, and the beauty of the kingdom than Lucy and Peter and Aslan. They are in the very same place. It's just that they don't see the very same things. They have... It's not that they've been excluded from the glory of Narnia. They are every bit as much in Narnia as the heroes. In fact, it would be impossible for the dwarfs to be any closer than they already are. But their eyes are wrong. The absence of proper seeing leaves them incapable of experiencing Narnia as Narnia. Their blindness robs them of the joy of Narnia and thus leaves them scowling and bitter you know what? This is what happens to us. It's not 
as though you have been excluded from Narnia, so to speak. You're there. And in the moment that you are born again, you begin to actually see the kingdom of God. How many of you have ever tried to tell someone about that kingdom? You try to tell somebody, I see it. It's as clear as life to me. How come you can't see it? It takes a miracle. It takes an opening of the eyes. It takes uh, uh, something supernatural that happens in our, in, in our spiritual perception. Daily we dine on the bounty of the king's food. We raise his golden goblets of rich red wine. But something rather like an optical illusion keeps happening and people do not see properly. We do not see who we really are. We are heirs of the king, joint heirs with the son. We do not see where we are. We rule together with him in heavenly places. But no, all we see is this dirt around our feet. We do not really grasp the glory with which we are involved. This optical illusion, this absence of light, this absence of proper seeing destroys our ability to experience the feast as a feast, to experience the fair as a fair, to to experience life as truly life. And without seeing the glory, we have no freedom to live it. And life inevitably becomes joyless and boring, meaningless routine, sometimes even dreadful. But, but I pray, said the Apostle Paul, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God, would you open our eyes so that we might not walk in this world, world like dwarfs who think we're eating old turnip and drinking Water from the donkey trough. God, would you open our eyes that we might see the kingdom of God, that we might see fresh with wonder and simplicity, with with a sense of dependence, with a sense of humility in the presence of this great God with whom we have to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.